Before springing Sweeney, Ness took a moment alone with him. The polygraph sometimes proved too much for its subject. More than one suspect, presented with seemingly scientific proof of guilt, had broken down and confessed. Ness may have hoped for that, especially since Larson's findings seemed to have shaken Sweeney up. Trying to intimidate the doctor was not Ness's style. He may have attempted to reason with him, if that were possible. But Sweeney refused to confess, knowing full well that the lie detector tests could not be used in court. I think you did those killings, Ness said. You think, Sweeney replied with a laugh. Prove it. The doctor fixed Ness with such a threatening, hateful stare that the safety director backed off, moving closer to the door, prepared to call in the other detectives if Sweeney made any move to attack him. But the doctor merely got up and left, having apparently tired of the game. Ness could do nothing to stop him, at least nothing legal. When he checked, one shift of guards had left, and the replacements had not yet arrived. To his horror, Ness realized he'd been on his own with a potentially violent lunatic. That was the first, and as far as I know, last face-to-face encounter between Elliot Ness and the man who would later become dangerously obsessed with him. ghosties, my ghoulies, and my moth people. Welcome to Noctivagant, the show about the strange, paranormal, otherworldly, and the people who write books about it. My name is Jay, and I am joined today by my esteemed fellows, Rory and Nick. Hey. On this show, we are going to discuss, dissect, and review the best and worst in the world of paranormal and conspiracy literature. So settle in, buckle up, and prepare for a walk on the midnight roads of Noctivagant. In this week's book, we travel back to 1930s Cleveland, nicknamed the Dark City at the time. There, Elliot Ness has assumed a new post as the city's safety director. A man of incredible principle and drive, Ness spends the next several years overhauling the Cleveland PD, working tirelessly to root out corrupt cops, desegregate and educate the rank and file, and battling racketeering wherever he could find it. Ness more than earns his now legendary reputation as an untouchable lawman. His refusal to accept bribes or tolerated in his cops and his refusal to permit vice to run wild in his streets earned Ness powerful enemies in the mob, in the department, and in local and state government. However, gangsters and greedy cops are not the only evil Ness is tasked with stopping. Stalking the shack-lined streets of the Roaring Third is a more uncommon menace. A serial killer that predates the very concept, the mad butcher of Kingsbury Run targets Cleveland's least protected citizens and then leaves their dismembered bodies to be discovered by hapless civilians. Police are at a loss. This crime feels new and singular. So the investigation is new and singular. Utilizing undercover operations, lie detectors, and an actual psychological profile put together by dozens of cops, detectives, doctors, and reporters in the fascinating Torso Conference, the hunt for the Mad Butcher seems like it couldn't fail. 
But there's one catch. The man that most agree was responsible, Dr. Francis Sweeney, had powerful connections. One of Ness's biggest detractors, Senator Sweeney, was the man's first cousin. The bodies pile up, the city grows fearful, and all the reforms in the world don't outweigh the stain of the mad butcher. Out of his depth and surrounded by political enemies, Ness finds his investigations thwarted and his integrity in question. The prime suspect eventually walks after taunting Ness repeatedly. An impoverished gay man takes the rap at least in the public eye, and dies under strange circumstances in police lockup. Elliot Ness's career also dies, inch by miserable inch, after an unsuccessful foray into politics is matched by an equally unsuccessful foray into international business. The untouchable fades into a depressing obscurity. Back in Cleveland, his reforms flounder and fall short without his guidance, and the old guard rips them to pieces. If not for a posthumous biography, he may have been long forgotten by our century. But no matter how much time and distance Ness got from the Mad Butcher case, he never stopped thinking about the man who got away, Dr. Francis Sweeney. That man done did that thing. Sweeney? Yeah. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> I know. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. I know. <laughs> I know. So, hey, guys, how you doing? I'm, I'm doing good. pretty good. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was pretty pretty chill week. Had a Monday off, so short week. Good. Oh, Jesus Christ. Fourth of July was last Sunday. Yeah. 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 Uh, uh, it was. I, that was a great weekend. We did a lot of fun stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I actually survived outside in the heat for the first time since surgery. I was so proud of yeah, myself. We did our first CE5. That was pretty yeah. That was pretty wild. It was. It was wild. It was a good time. I yeah. don't want to talk about it. <laughs> 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 also, fun fact, listeners, I had to uh, re-record that intro a couple of times because I had the word evil and the word ness right next to each <laughs> other, and I kept saying evil. <laughs> I, it was funny to watch uh, Jay progressively get more infuriated with their own mouth. <laughs> uh, I had braces for eight years, guys. My jaw is all fucked up. I don't know how I talk. See, I, I don't see. I'm so used to having the start and stop like I, like punch and roll style recording because when I did my solo show, I would fuck up on everything <laughs> and it's just like and i'm doing 30 minutes of that of me just talking you know for 30 minutes or more that like the fumbles like that and editing you know you know post fixing it all that's just it, it's just, just what i did it it's, feels like trying to give a book report and your teacher's standing behind you yeah. and you can feel her judgmental stare burning into the back of your neck well, I mean, it's even worse because instead of a teacher, you're staring at, you know, your 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 life partner and one of your best friends. And, you know, we will make fun of you. <laughs> yes. That's why I made fun of myself for saying evil before you could do it. <laughs> so anyway, uh, the Mad Butcher of Kingsbury Run. Yeah. What a fucking book, though. Right. Yeah, no, it, it was. I, I mean, on a purely uh, literary level, it was brilliant it was beautifully written uh the descriptions were great it gave a very engaging portrait of the characters primarily ness and sweeney uh yeah. i thought it was i thought it was incredibly well written i thought it was a well-crafted narrative uh that again firmly outside of my ballywick uh this was i think maybe the second true crime book i've read ever i think i think uh my you know you know the book itself i like nick like nick said i i think it was it was very it was a very enjoyable read i will say um for the title being you know elliot ness and the mad butcher 
once again, we are lacking a lot of butcher because yeah. like the, the like maybe twenty five percent of the book yeah. was actually about that that case. Yeah, it was. Uh, I uh, I my experience with the book was me getting sucked in reading these cool adventures about Elliot Ness ha- that Elliot Ness was having post prohibition era, and then every couple of chapters, a fucking corpse would turn up, <laughs> right. and then people would be like, "Why aren't you doing anything about this?" And he's like, "That's not my job." You know, it's funny. That's actually I was reading through my notes today uh, that I took when I was reading it, and yeah, I uh, I had a very similar experience because I would you know I very clearly get sucked into him going after the uh, the rackets and going after the mob and going after the gambling dens, and then just suddenly in all caps in my nose, be like, oh look, another body. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just, <laughs> I wonder. If, but here's the thing: I think that's probably how the people of, of uh, the police, Cleveland police force, felt. Just because you know. You got to think how long they don't know it's a serial killer. They have no reason to expect there will be more bodies. And then they just keep piling up. I was I don't I think it wasn't until there was even like three bodies until they even figured out that it was probably the same guy doing it. And yeah. it was if I'm recalling this correctly, it was the coroner who was first like, hey, I think the same guy is doing yeah. this. I, honestly, that coroner is like the MVP of the book of the book, in my opinion. He's the one who uh, who fig who got them on the right trail. No, well, I mean, it makes sense, though, because uh, the coroner has they were the big things that they seemed to connect them together was the like medical and like medical look of the uh, the butchering, I guess yeah. you'd yeah. say. So it makes yeah. sense that he would recognize that. Yeah. Plot twist. It was actually the coroner. It was not Sweeney at all. It was no, just it, the coroner. It was Sweeney. Uh, it, 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 150%. <laughs> all right. If evidence came out that it was not Dr. Sweeney who did those things, I, I don't know. I'll... I'll eat like eight onions. I hate onions. Okay. So there we go. I was, I, I was about to say something gross, but I got to hedge my bets here. Like, yeah, I'm not going to like, I don't know, eat a guy's ass cheek or something. Just fry it on a pan. You I still it, you... have people calling me out for not eating my own arms after one of the Steven Universe reveals <laughs> I was angry about. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm, um, I'm glad you didn't eat your arm. I, I like my arms where they are attached to my body. And I have one more uh, semi-controversial take before we move on to discussion questions. Uh, this book, a couple of points posited, is just like Elliot Ness's real nemesis, the mad butcher, not Scarface, the mad butcher. And I'm like... Elliot Ness's nemesis was racketeering and traffic accidents. You know who the <laughs> Mad Butcher's nemesis was? Detective Peter Barillo. That was and the Butcher's cops. nemesis. Oh, yeah. I mean, really, I think Ness's nemesis was human nature um, <laughs> was corruption in all of its forms this yeah. this this man who was more of a monk than a cop and he was like why can't everyone just be unsh- have unshakable integrity like me and they're like because the rest of us suck elliot let's <laughs> say for his off time then he's you know having fancy dinner parties at the city elite and uh getting really into boating during his midlife crisis which i thought was a great <laughs> little detail because i just got this image in my head of him like just leaving the office you know he has been fighting mobsters all day loosening his tie and then hopping in a speedboat and the jetting f- off onto lake erie the fact that he would just he would just ride that that luxury liner back and forth from Cleveland to Detroit like all night and all day whenever he was having like a bad head day and just see I and he didn't even get off the boat. He, oh. he, he, he was wasn't he hiding from Sweeney. 
No, I think he's hiding from his marriages. <laughs> yeah, yeah, correct. I believe. Yeah, I, yeah, I agree. Oh God. Okay, so let's move into some discussion questions about Elliot Ness and how sad his life became. I mean, yeah, I will say this: that that was my overwhelming feeling at the end of this book. Is I had an I had a new respect for Elliot Ness because I knew very little about him, uh, and I felt so fucking sad and angry and all kinds of negative emotions. I had to spend a day processing. And that's fair. So our very first our very first question is this is our first actual episode on a true crime book. And true crime has always been more my obsession than your guys's. Um, what previous forays into the topic have you two made? Uh, and like, was this if you've made previous forays, was this a different kind of case for you? And just a second part of the question, if you guys want to speculate, why do you think true crime fascinates some of us, but will repulse other people? Okay, so, you know, calling me a, a true crime novice, I guess, probably is not exactly correct. I'm a true crime novice when it comes to books. Yeah. Because I've I've listened to every single episode of last podcast on the left. I've I've listened to I've watched a couple true crime documentaries that you've had on. Um, and the one other book I read was uh, Harold Schechter's Hell's Princess about Belgunis. And so I, I would I, count murder rap. as That's true. I forgot I read murder rap. And yep. that, that was uh, the book about the murders of Tupac and Biggie Smalls. And that was pretty good. Um, but I Largely speaking, I haven't been too invested in it. And I think the, probably the reason is uh, when I was younger, you know, things like real gore, real murder, there was, you know, that kind of cool factor to me. Like, yeah, you know, because it was it was unreal. It was like a, it was like a movie. And the older I've gotten, the more I I empathize more with the victims. And because that it becomes harder for me to really dwell on these topics uh, just because, you know, I realize that it puts me in kind of a bad mental space. But that said, I think like I've I've always enjoyed it. I've always stayed next to true crime, but I've never really uh, dove into it the same way you have. But one thing I, I will say is this was a different experience just because of two reasons. One, most of the true crime that I've uh, ingested has been about the the villain. You yeah. know, like last podcast on left, whenever they're doing a serial killer, they're very focused on that serial killer's life and their deeds and the order of events that happened to them. Uh this is really the first time outside of murder rap that I've read something that was focused on the other side of that equation of the who were the cops involved in this. And I think for this one, what it drove home to me is really how difficult it would have to be to throw your to have a case like a serial killer happening in your city when you also have everything else that still happens in a city. Yeah. And I think I got a much better appreciation for how difficult of a job uh, policing is, especially around you know the 1930s. Yeah. As well as uh, just generally how, I guess, uh, e easy it would be to ha have a serial killer operating in your city and no one even notices because, you know, yeah, a couple bodies showed up down by the ditch, but we have a literal mob over there burning down people's businesses. Yeah. And so I, I, I liked it. It gave me a lot more context around the case, uh, which just gave me some more to chew on, which was nice. I, I enjoyed it. Yay. Uh, my... I have I have no like I have no previous experience with true crime, I guess, other than what I've ingested via osmosis from you guys, because <laughs> like I've never read any true crime books. Um, 
Uh, and when it comes to last, like last pod, I've, I haven't listened to every episode. I've listened and like I've listened to a bunch, but mostly I listen to their uh, supernatural, like their alien shit and their their conspiracy shit. And then I listen to some stuff about cults. I mean, those are good episodes. Yeah, um, but I mean, as for the second part of your question, what do I think? Why do I think it fascinates uh, some and repulses others? I, human psychology is weird that's fair you know uh some you people get fascinated by the weirdest things like uh like me for example i love i love pirates you know when it comes to like the golden age of piracy i know a ton about different pirate captains because i think that that time frame and that lifestyle was interesting so something might you know i guess you could say something might have had or something about those cases interests those people maybe at one point the you know they had dreamed of being an fbi agent themselves so they were researching true crime and then they didn't go that route but their interest in the crime like in that the, the the crimes themselves didn't stop you know yeah you know that well another reason i think why we see probably it attracts people and repulses people. I think for a lot of people, it's probably rooted in the same emotion, which is fear. Yeah. Some people, you know, you you read about these stories. It's horrifying, to, especially like you think about a lot of serial killers. Uh, you know, there's no rhyme or reason. There's no way to really protect yourself from it, for, to make yourself less of a victim. It could be your neighbor who just decides one day to walk in and bludgeon your head in. And there's nothing you can do to control that. And that's a terrifying concept, especially because, as we've seen, serial killers can come from any walk of life. Yes. Right. Um, the But I think some people, when they encounter that fear, their first reaction is to pull back, to be revolted, and to not want to engage in it. I think uh, for some people... The uh, the fear instead drives them to try to learn more, almost as a way of trying to control the uncontrollable. Absolutely. Uh, of saying, well, if I really understand these guys, I can make it so they won't, you know, they won't come for me, or I'll know what to look out for. And I mean, th- I'm not it's not to say it might not be true, because there are clear signs in most serial killers that that person's not right. Yes. Uh, and so it might make you a little more conscious, a little more aware. But at the same, I think it really does. It is rooted in that that shared fear that we all have. Unless, you know, I'm sure that there are some people who like it because it gets them hot under the collar. And I'm sure there's some people who just like it because cool gore. And uh, I mean, I guess to each their own. I That seems a little strange to me. But I mean, that said, I, lo- I love horror. Right. So yes. it's really what's the dividing line there? It's real. Pe- I guess the dividing line is real versus fictional. I can watch 10,000 characters get brutalized on an endless stream of horror movies and it doesn't bother me. But in this book, you know, it wasn't even really that grotesque, but they showed one severed head and it messed with me. Yeah. 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 That's uh, yeah. For anyone interested in picking up in this book, please uh, keep in mind that there are going to be several black and white photographs uh, scattered throughout it. And some of them are are going to show things you can't unsee. <laughs> yeah, I think I think the severed head is the grossest one. Yeah. I think the others are just like, here's the crime scene from a distance in an angle where you cannot see the mutilated torso behind the weeds. Um so for me personally, true crime started out as just kind of a macabre fascination and as I get older and older, it has just become more of a way of a way for me to truly see the extent to which our system constantly fails people. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because as I said in the summary, um, part of the reason that the butcher got away with what he was doing is because it took a really long time 
for not just the police, but for the city of Cleveland itself to give a fuck about what was happening there, because none of those none of those people were important. There's even a like to like in terms of like societally, they didn't have powerful connections. They were impoverished. Several of them were. I. It was a mix between black and white victims, but none of them were wealthy. Several of the women were believed to be prostitutes and. <laughs> There was even a quote in there about like the the key to getting away with murder is not how you do it. It's who you pick. And that to me, in some ways, is a lot of the is is the essence of true crime is that that's largely what that's largely what I think when I think it's at its best is when it is the documentation of the failures of our police, our government, our prison system and our mental health care system. Well, this book did uh, that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Because like I and this is going to be controversial. Like, yes, primarily the people that our system fails in cases like this are the victims to a certain extent. The killers have been failed to. Because it's like nobody just wakes up and is like, I'm going to go kill people just because I think it's fun. Like they do think it's fun, but that's because to put it bluntly and crassly, they're cracked in the head and nobody knows how to fix them. Right. Like, I mean, and also, I mean, as we know, there are certain events that tend to lead towards serial killers, a traumatic brain injury, abuse at a young age. Yes. As well as other just, you know, uh, signs that indicate that that pathology is growing. Signs that if you have a robust social network, if you have a robust social worker system of social workers, there are things that can be noticed. Yes. You know, know, it's not just, well, that, you know, that kid's back there and he keeps burning animals alive, but hey, (laughs) that's, you know, boys will be boys. It's like, no, you, you, you need need to we need to keep an eye on each other a little better to make sure none of us are, are going off in that direction yeah yeah absolutely because the, i mean you said it you said the boys will be boys thing and you know that uh, i hate that phrase so much for multiple reasons but the idea that like people can you know being aggressive at a young age is just natural and frankly it's it, it it's not and it shouldn't be yeah yeah so for our second question this was a glimpse into a much older sort of policing and a rather raw and honest look at the plight of African-Americans, vulnerable women and the impoverished at the hands of law enforcement. Uh, were you guys prepared for some of the infuriating and horrifying stories we read of the ones that you remember, which ones were especially jarring? And like, I don't, I'm not just talking about the butcher. I'm talking about all the other shit we had to read about that was going on in Cleveland at the time. You know, honestly, I think the the story, I guess, that bothered me the most in terms of, um, like, just how i how fucked up it was and is because it took me by surprise yeah. uh was when nest did that whole shit with the shack towns 
Oh yeah. When yeah, uh when he burned when he when he burned down the shanty town in Roaring in the Roaring Third. Right. So, and his his goal there was, you know, if there's no homeless, there's no victims, right? But yeah. he also showed no no empathy, which was for him surprising. Yeah. He showed but he showed yeah. no empathy for the for the homeless that were there. He he was still, you know, for being as honestly progressive as Elliot Ness was, it's it was surprising to see that when it came to homeless he still had that mindset that this is all their fault and you know whatever or this was all their fault and that they you know they just don't have a job whatever whatever his the mentality might be but i was just blown away by his lack of giving a shit like he i in the in the in the the, he did the same strategy that he did with that when he moved on, you know, past the Cleveland police department, the Cleveland area. And he started doing that whole travel uh, shit with the military. Yeah. Uh, and he was rounding up prostitutes and shit. His, yeah. It was arrest first, figure it out later to the point where at one point he arrested 1400 people, only 300 or 1400 women, only 300 of them were prostitutes. Yep. So, yeah, uh, to give a little context for our listeners at home, um, what Rory is referring to is uh, the the butcher of Kingsbury Run, the the mad butcher, the Cleveland Torso Care, whatever you want to call that guy, if you don't want to call him Francis Sweeney. I call him Dr. Sweeney. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> um, the people that he preyed upon, as we mentioned, were uh, Cleveland's impoverished and homeless, and he targeted a hobo jungle, a.k.a. a Hoover town in a district of the city called the Roaring Third. Uh, that's where all of his victims came from. That's where the area were quite a few of them were dumped and at some point Elliot Ness snapped a little and he said okay I've got an idea I know how we're going to drive him out into the open we're going to burn down the hobo jungle and everyone went okay cool and they literally burned down all of the shanties and shacks and like shelters where these people were living and this was this place is not necessarily what you're picturing this was a place where people pooled their resources for communal mule meals it was actually a place of very little violence in between the actual residents and it was a it was considered a safe haven they had their own form of government that they were electing officials within their own community and when a serial killer started preying upon them and chopping them up and dumping them for people to find the safety director of cleveland said okay light it on fire so you know what's interesting about that uh i mean i'm gonna uh contradict rory a little here i see i got a different read on the burning of the shanty towns i i read those that act as something that ness did that to me expressed how out of his element sweeney had put him and the reason what i mean is because that was after their their first real encounter and that yeah. was after ness realized he didn't have enough to to arrest sweeney yes they knew that they they heavily suspected it was him there had been sightings of a man matching his description around the area and a uh well there was one guy who uh, Froneck, who was very nearly killed by the butcher way back, and he ended up coming forward right. and leading them to the place 
where it happened. And that was where Sweeney used to practice medicine. I saw uh, Ness at that point, just not really knowing what to even do about this, because this guy so far, there was not enough evidence to arrest him. And Ness couldn't figure him out. He didn't operate uh, how criminal how Ness thought criminals were supposed to operate. And I read that almost as as purely just him not knowing what else to do. And especially because of the description of how he reacted to the conditions in the Hoover town, he was saddened and sickened by the, the conditions. A lot of those people were living in. I, I actually agree with both of you. Rory is correct in that Ness did not have enough actual informed cognitive empathy for those people, because like, like, Nick said he was horrified that people were living like this and he couldn't he couldn't understand that what he was going to do was not going to improve the situation at all. And he couldn't understand that sometimes some people also just want to opt out of the system. They don't want to participate in society the way that we want them to by having jobs and a house with a mortgage attached to it. And he he it was even stated in the book he couldn't see past the shacks yeah. so i think that and i don't think it was malicious much like um much like his completely his his uneven treatment of white citizens versus black citizens it seemed more like an unconscious bias and the fact that he did not understand the place of privilege that he occupied and he couldn't he sometimes struggled to meet people where they were at, and he just he made a decision that hopefully later in his life he was capable of regretting. But the, the, the truth is, whatever motivated it, he made the situation significantly worse for the residents of the Roaring Third. Absolutely. I mean, so I mean, that that to me, I think, speaks to I mean, it speaks to me to, to who Ness was, at least the feeling I got off the book is, you know, he was this he's a very progressive, civilly minded person. He wants to treat everyone equal. He's trying his best. But ultimately, he perpetually falls short of that goal because, in my mind, he's a product of his time. Yes. There's only, you know, he was not, there was no chance for him to really get to get to live on the other side of things. He always had a home. He always had a career. Yes. And he, you know, he was almost a victim of his fabulous success. <laughs> he kept moving up in the world. And I think at some point, he it's easy to lose perspective and start thinking, well, I did this. Why can't all these other people do it? Um, I, and that, I mean, I don't think, obviously, it doesn't forgive some of the things he did. Yeah. Uh, but I, I do think largely he had good intentions. That said, that only gets you so far. My, I guess the part where I, I can I can say maybe or like I I don't disagree with your statement. The thing is, is he did that without taking into consideration what they they being the people that actually lived in the in, you know, in that section of the Roaring Third, he essentially gave them two options, either go to jail or go to this other home. And a yeah. lot of them specifically said they didn't want to go to this other home, you know, and I mean, they even had a quote in the book about uh, one of them saying that, you know, that person they want to go there, that they had their own life here and that it was fine. They weren't hurting anybody and they're not they're not wrong but the his his desperate move was let's eliminate or let's remove all of these homeless people from here which 
smart in the sense of you're taking away the butcher's potential, you know, crop of victims, but just jailing them. These people who some of them had and it said nine cents in their pocket. The rest had nothing. Yep. And they can't afford the $25 vagrancy charge, so they go to jail. Um, There was also a man they specifically mentioned in there who, as far as we can tell, lost his job, his one source of income, because of the indiscriminate arrests. Right. Right. Because some of the people in those towns were actually employed. Yeah. They just weren't employed at a rate high enough to have a home. Yep. And it's... It, it struck me as like he he had he had empathy for them in the way that we have empathy for schools of fish that are being eaten by a shark. And I feel like, again, because of his unconscious bias, he struggled to see them as individuals and he struggled to understand the full consequences of what he was doing. Right. And I mean, similarly, you know, it's interesting. This comes up over and over again in the book. And I think if there was one thing that I don't like, I mean, to, to me wrong, there's plenty to not like about Elliot Ness. Yes. There's plenty to like. I think the thing that, that struck me is probably the trait that bothered me most about him um, was the fact that, like, you know, he's a famous prohibition agent. That's where he got his start in Chicago fighting Al Capone's mob and all that. Yep. Um, and he didn't believe in prohibition. He didn't like the law, but he still doggedly enforced it. And then later, uh, after his time as the safety director, he went to work for the U.S. government as part of a division that was basically, like I was mentioned earlier, basically uh, aimed at reducing prostitution around military bases, specifically because during World War One, uh, there was a fun statistic in here where more soldiers were taken off the battlefield by venereal disease than German bullets. Yep. And so the idea was in World War Two, well, we got to get rid of the prostitutes uh, to you know, to keep our fighting men healthy. And, you know, it, uh, similarly, I, I feel like he threw himself at them. Like Rory said, a lot of innocent people got arrested because of that, because he didn't really have a way of dealing with things other than arresting people. Yep. But again, he had no problem with prostitution personally. He thought it should be legal. And more than that, he thought that prostitutes were victims. He thought that they needed to be that they were failed, that society had failed them and we needed to advocate for them and train them. Uh, his plan, which they didn't let him do, was to not arrest these women, but to train them in war in the wartime industries. And <laughs> what I what bothers me is he can he has able he's the ability to say, hey, these laws are stupid. I don't agree with them. But still doggedly enforce them. And I get that that's his job. And I get that we really, you know, we don't want cops going off on the dirty, hairy bent and taking justice into their own hands or selectively enforcing laws. because That's how we invite corruption. But at the same time, it, it did bug me, uh, I guess, how successfully he enforced things he didn't agree with, uh, which I mean, I guess, again, he's a victim of his own success. I think he was very much a product of his times. I think he was probably doing the best he could. And I think probably... I mean, I don't know for sure, but I suspect if he was alive today, I think he probably and had had, you know, the same access to information and that we have through the Internet to other people's lives and their experiences. I think he probably would have handled some of those situations differently. Yeah, no, I don't I don't necess- I don't disagree. Uh, I, I just think when it comes to or I think uh, like kind of what you said, um, he he would do his job and enforce the laws that to the best of it, you know, to the best of his abilities, which was very successful in a lot, in a lot of ways. Um, but I also think that 
he because he had the he had a bigger vision that he would continuously try to implement and it seemed like after it got like after it got got denied like for like uh, a couple of the reforms he tried to make in cleveland uh got declined by city council he would just scrap the whole idea and start with something else instead of continuing to push for his idea and i think uh, kind of unrelated but i think that alone shows why he didn't make a good politician uh, yeah. yeah i mean ness was never gonna be a good politician he yeah. also should not have tried to be a businessman that is the most baffling choice i saw him make throughout I mean, the entire book it went well for a yeah, while he made a lot of money yeah he he turned the diebold co- lock company around and he founded a couple trading companies which were profitable for a couple years um and then they weren't and then everything crumbled around him and he lost everything so so nick just to, just specifically uh, which story did jar you the most personally oh, if you geez. can remember any individuals Weird- Weirdly, uh, and I, I don't know why this sticks out in my head, and I think it's probably because it's an element of our society that I've never really read about, which was the labor element. Yeah. Um, and especially how di- I, I got a new appreciation for how difficult of a situation that is, because, you know, the laborers, they're, they're pissed off. They're picketing out for outside of I think it was Republic Steel. Yeah. Um, and like like many pickets at the time, it was going poorly. You know, it, the, the uh, there were there was violence between the workers being brought in to fill the picketer spots. Uh, the picketers were growing increasingly frustrated and the police were tasked with keeping order. How do you do that when when it seems like violence could break out at any moment and not, you know, rise to the occasion? The whole story of the how that first uh that first riot went awry and the cops basically just pulled their guns and started mowing people down. They shot 10 people in the back. And yeah. that, I mean, it just stunned me because I, I was thinking, imagine if that happened today. Imagine if, you know, there was, there was a, uh, you know, not protest, a strike happening and the, the cops pulled out their guns and just started popping people in the back of the head. It'd be everywhere. But I guess that was, it's I, maybe a bit of the zeitgeist of the time. Um, but really, also just how impossible the situation is, because Ness eventually tried to get all the labor unions uh, leaders to come and meet with him to talk about this, to, to deal with the situation. And the fucking douchebags at Republic Steel, the moment that the picketers were gone, they uh, brought in 500 hired goons to destroy the labor union headquarters. It's like, yeah, I, I mean, that said, I, I am pissed that Ness didn't go after them for that, because yeah, I, I think have. the one thing that I, I could condemn Ness for is he he was way too lenient with the city industry and elite. And granted, yeah. there might have been political concerns there just because I, he was appointed by the mayor. Industry is important for the city of Cleveland. I, I, I can kind of see that. But still, if he's this guy who's enforcing laws that he doesn't agree with, well, I don't know why he stopped short, you know? Yeah. Uh, so I think that probably infuriated me. Also, all the racial stuff and that that partially pissed me off just because so there were several points in the book where he demoted officers or put them on leave because they 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 you know in a racist tirade kill the black man in one of the cases it was clearly racist he burst into a bar <laughs> screaming racial obscenities and then shot a random black guy um and i don't i think the reason that upset me so much is because nothing's fucking changed yeah well uh, and uh how many of these people that did that pre or like during that they said just got suspended they didn't even get they didn't get fired they just got suspended oh, yeah it 
and it, it, like, infuriating. Oh my god, I could, I can't believe it. And that's the the same kind of shit that they still try to pull today. Yep. Oh, I I will say on a funnier note, there was one line in particular, and I wrote it down because it it enraged me, but also made me laugh. Yes, tell uh, me. So this was about uh, this was from the Plain Dealer, which was a newspaper in Cleveland, talking about the torso murders of uh, the, the Mad Butcher. The Bureau of Narcotics suggested, according to the Plain Dealer, that the Slayer was addicted to narcotics, probably marijuana, which, as we all know, inspires its user with an unreasoning desire to kill. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, every time I smoke weed, I definitely have an undesirable to kill a chocolate bar. I the only time I don't want to murder people is when I'm high. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I would be the fucking mad butcher of Kingsbury Run if it was not for THC and marijuana. <laughs> um, it's not THC that makes me want to kill people. It's anxiety. Oh, that's ah. just the voices in my case. Um, I think the story that jarred me the most was the fucking concentration camps for prostitutes oh, with venereal right. disease yeah. they set up. That uh, that made me want to light myself on fire and so I could die and go to hell and beat Elliot Ness up. Well, even that, though, is a great example of how Elliot Ness had these great ideas, but he just lacked the follow through because, you know, he wanted to re- rehabilitate these women. And the jails are too full to, to you know pack in all the ones that were arrested. So, hey, we have these camps that no one's using. Let's send them there, and then we can give them rehabilitation and job training. And that's a cool idea, except for it's a, you know it's a, it's a it's a camp. But uh, but the problem was is that the fe- basically he was trusting in the federal authorities managing the camps to follow through when they absolutely didn't they turned it into an abuse factory and the only yeah. things that they would allow the women to train in were you know sewing it was it, womenly things not things that were needed for the war industry certainly yeah, yeah. uh it's just frustrating something I, I noticed throughout the book is he had like a couple of ideas that he would repeatedly go to like when he had the gang leaders meet to do like the 30 day ceasefire right uh, was that the was that when he met with the adult gangs or the children the, gangs? The children gangs. Yeah, yeah, the and, gangs of roving children. Yeah, and then, um, but then it, he did the same method, uh, the same tactic with the labor unions, uh, essentially bringing them all together to try and you know resolve whatever issue it might be. Uh, and then he had the same kind of idea with the homeless people. We're gonna just. We're going to arrest him and we'll figure it out from there. And then he has the same idea with the with the prostitutes. We're just going to arrest them all and then we'll figure it out from there. It's like, motherfucker, you got to think past step one, dude. You got to go. This has never not worked. Well, I mean, honestly, it's also never worked. Oh, it hasn't shit. What if we take all the people and we move them over there? (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, And then I can go back to preventing traffic accidents. And that's the thing. My one real passion in life. That's the thing is, if you really look at it, the reforms that he had vision for, that he had the multiple steps about, they weren't about individual crimes, really. They were about these grand redesigns of how the society worked. Well, and uh, a lot of them were great ideas. No, I mean, I have uh, I have a quote here, which I I love this this statistic just to kind of show that he he did do a lot of good for the city of Cleveland. I'm firmly oh, yeah. I firmly oh, yeah. believe he he was he's probably one of the, the best citizens Cleveland could has ever had. 
they got number one safest large city yeah. with him. Well, you know, it's so he he cut traffic fatalities in half, felonies dropped by a third, robberies by two thirds, and car thefts by half. And like uh, Rory just said, they were declared the safest city while they had an active serial killer still operating. Yep. yep. That's amazing to me. And, and, yeah. And it was also it was just like the. I was so repeatedly struck by the fact that he refused to carry a gun. The fact that he hated guns and kind of almost didn't like that his cops carried them. And just like, like, especially that, that raid at the Harvard club where like, there's all these fucking gangsters in there and district attorney Culloden is just like calls Ness at like two in the morning. He's like, nobody will help me. Uh. (laughs) It's like, and Ness is like, Oh, Oh, I'll find somebody to fucking help you and comes down there with 33 off-duty cops and he's like, let's go beat up some mobsters. It's like, Elliot, where's your gun? He's like, you think I need a fucking gun? Do I look like a pansy to you? No. He actually just kind of looks like a goober. I mean, Elliot Ness <laughs> is totally baby-faced. Like, oh, yeah. Uh, and they bring it up several times. There. He's, he was so soft-spoken and so gentle, yet the criminals are terrified of him. And here's the thing. I think... It probably would be more scary if I was a criminal and, the, you know, the boogeyman who's been destroying our entire existence uh, looks like a 12 year old in a suit walking at me. I think that would be scarier. It's just like, oh, God, where's his gun? Is he going to breathe fire? No, he doesn't need to. He just needs to, to be disappointed in you and you'll just evaporate. Uh, they compared him to Superman, at least one in the book. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, right down to the fact that he will only date women whose first initial is E. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like Superman will only bang chicks with a double L initial. Actually, can we talk about that? I don't know if it comes up later in your questions, but uh, Elliot Ness's marriages. I thought that was very interesting because from the beginning, every single time they said and then he got married. I'm just sitting there going, this is not going to go well. And it never did. No, it never went well because he was not married to them he was he married was, to justice yeah, he was married <laughs> to justice and i i mean i felt really bad for him, especially the first wife uh what was her name edna edna, edna. 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 Well, they, they eventually, you know, they started to drift oh. apart and then they went on vacation to Florida and she stayed there and she never talked to him again. And that line was just a gut punch because, you know, I want that was the first wife. I didn't know that there was going to be a string of wives and I, I wanted it to work out for them. I thought, oh, that's that's nice. She seems like a nice lady. The picture, she looks very sweet. Um I was just really sad. I felt very sad that day, especially because right after that, they just wrote her out of the story, you know, and they told us the rest of her life story, which was very sad. Yeah, yeah. she she died alone, died alone. She didn't get a she didn't have a funeral. Yeah, no. she she died alone in a in a home of cancer. Yeah. <sighs> and just that's it. That, oh, that, Edna that, Ness. that broke my heart. Edna Ness. I mean, at least his second wife like ha- was cool enough. Well, I mean, now I'm not saying this is Edna's fault. The second wife uh, ran off with the model from her art studio. Yeah, and uh, had a tour. Oh, yeah, went off had yeah. a tour lesbian affair and eventually remarried. And what I found interesting about her is, so she was a commercial artist and she continued to write and paint after the divorce with the Ness name. She never changed her name back. Neither did Edna actually. Oh, really? Yeah, Edna. Correct. Kept yeah. the name Ness. Yeah, and then it's I, kind of a cool last name. Well, and then the third wife stuck. Uh, the third wife was with him till he died. Yep. Yep. What was her name? Elizabeth. Elizabeth. Yep. All ease. 
Yeah. Yeah. You see, you see this shit. I feel you, you see why that's bothering me. <laughs> like it's weird. Yeah. It's weird. Yeah, I, didn't, I, I didn't notice it till you said it. That That is a little strange. Uh, what do you make of the story of the one random corrupt cop who claimed that when Elliot drank, he uh, he would make out with the, the, uh, some other men on the force? That's so funny that you that you brought that up because talking about that earlier, we were just talking See, about I, that. Personally, as much as I think it'd be amusing, I don't believe it. Just no way. No, no don't way. actually. No, the only source is a guy who Ness had you know condemned for being corrupt. So yeah. like he had every reason to to want to say say whatever he can about Ness to ruin his reputation at the time that would ruin your reputation. Yeah, the 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 guys like oh, you know, or Elliot Ness or what he did he get fired? Was that No, what? I think he got demoted. Yeah, and she's oh, I just got demoted. Uh well, you know what? Fuck that guy. Elliot Ness, he's gay. He's a homo. He makes out <laughs> with all the other officers. You know that guy, you've seen it. Everybody else just fucking crickets. You know what I would believe a lot more than Elliot Ness was gay? I would believe Elliot Ness was asexual in a fucking heartbeat, like well, and you know, I w- it would have been way more convincing because he was an absolute player and a flirt if they had just said that he was cheating on his wife. Yeah. I mean, I I, I low-key believe he probably did no, cheat on I mean, they kind of hinted at it in the book that he cheated on his first wife with his second wife. Yeah. Yeah. They, 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 it's, there's a little conjecture that she might have already been in the picture by the time Edna was gone. But yeah. It is, it, it was, it's not like solid fact. It was yeah. just something that was kind of implied yeah uh, it's just sad uh, his personal life was just so sad I mean, I, and you know one thing i will say that's kind of cool that he did was that they adopted the that they adopted a three-year-old yeah. that was cool. yeah, with his third wife yeah, uh, with his third with wife. elizabeth uh robert little bobby well, except robert had such a sad story too yeah he died at 30 of leukemia yeah Poor Elizabeth. God. Yeah, she, and she died alone. Yeah, <laughs> like oh god. So that's just maybe that's we need to we need to look into his second wife. I, what keep, happened to her. I keep telling you guys, he's Superman. No. All of his wives are have the same initial, and their lives end miserably. Seriously, this book should have been called "The Curse of Elliot Ness." <laughs> <laughs> oh god, the fact that one of his most trusted officers was like, "I betrayed you." I took a lot of money and I betrayed you. And it's like, God damn it. Well, this and doesn't work was, if you people insist on being humans with flaws. Well, what was that guy? Molnar? That was, yeah, Molnar. Yeah, basically a cor- the only corrupt cop that was able to operate throughout the entirety of Ness's reign under his nose. as just... I mean, I hated that guy. I kept me, waiting for him. Me fucking too. I was yeah. so happy when he uh, when it when they mentioned that after Ness was gone, he got arrested and he finally did do time for, you know, basically what he did uh, is he started running a racket on uh, on the on the bookie joints because yeah. his job was to raid the bookie joints and shut them down. And he started going to them being like, hey, if you give me a cut, I'll stop raiding you. And so he set up a racket on the rackets. I, I- I believe he is also the one who showed up at the uh, at the picket line at Republic Steel and started throwing rocks at no, picketers. That or, was Blackwell. Oh, that was Blackwell. Black, and Blackwell was I think his name was Blackwell. And he, as far as I can tell, wasn't corrupt. He was just a psychopath. Yeah. Blackwell, <laughs> he, Blackwell fucking sucked. And when I found it's like Blackwell's head of the detective squad, I was like, no. Yeah. Michael Blackwell. Uh, he was another famous of Ness's. Michael. That's why I got and, it mixed uh, up. His, his nickname was Sledgehammer Mike. Oh, yes. Yeah, because. Sledge- 
sledgehammer Mike. That's right. And because they would send him, basically Ness sent him when he needed to break stuff. And that was his job, was just go in there and wreck whatever he found. And I did think, I even though I know like we some of Blackwell's tactics we don't agree with, obviously in our more modern mindset they're repulsive. But that said, uh, he did have my my favorite line in the book. So a reporter was talking to Blackwell. Well, Blackwell was dealing with uh, another incursion of violence among the uh, among the strikers. And uh, this one did not turn into uh, any kind of fatalities. No guns were yeah. drawn, which people do attribute to Blackwell. He kept the peace, but he kept the peace by keeping it at a uh, at the violence at a survivable level, being that they started throwing rocks at each other. And at one point he's being interviewed in the middle of the battle yep. by a reporter. And here here's what he told the reporter. He said, pardon me for a minute while I throw some rocks. And then he proceeded to do just that. Yep. And I, I loved that image. I thought you know, Sledgehammer Mike is such a great the, character if he was fictional. The names, <laughs> the names in this book of just like y- you start with like Elliot Ness, which is like inherently an amazing name and then yeah and then like some of the people that he have like the the mad butcher's real name being dr francis sweeney and one of the mobsters he's always battling is maxi diamond and it's just like <laughs> fucking sledgehammer mike and the fucking detect the patrolman that was nicknamed camera eyes that pulled ness over <laughs> during yeah. ness was trying to go undercover for our listeners at home and he switched out his tags like his his license plate and his tags with something else so he could go undercover and one of the patrolmen had such a good memory for license plates and cars that his his fellows called him camera eyes and he was like that's the fucking safety director's car and he just (laughs) he pulls it over does not recognize ness himself and proceeds to arrest him and ness is like i'm I'm your boss and he's like yeah fuck you no yeah yeah, he Ness. thought. Yeah, that's so funny. I, I, and I did like that Ness didn't punish that guy. No, he yeah. was like, "Yeah, good job. You did a great job." He oh. wrote him a letter, letter of commendation. He was like, "Good job, buddy. Good job." I mean, I think that that's something Ness would have wanted. He would want any man on his force to be capable of arresting him if Ness, you know, got corrupt. <sighs> oh, Ness. I don't think it's possible to corrupt Ness, though. I mean, I. I, I tend to agree with that. I think he just had a very high opinion of what a lawman was supposed to be, and he lived by that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there's yeah. I have a quote by this about this from the book. Uh, Ness believed each cop should be an athlete, a doctor of sorts, a crack shot, a yeah. confessor, and a human relations expert. He encouraged his officers to keep an open mind and willingness to try new methods and ideas, never forgetting the public they served. Thank you, Nick, for that gorgeous segue into our next discussion question. Woo. Elliot Ness presents an interesting view of policing, science-based, social justice-focused, and forward-thinking. So here's my question. Could we have had this in America? Is there a world where police are untouchable, or are there not enough Elliot Nesses in the whole wide world to pull that off, especially given the flaws that we see within his own system? Basically, I'm asking... At this point, I have very little hope for salvaging our current police in this country. It's it there. There's too much crap there. And I'm just wondering and I'm asking you guys in your layman's opinion, is there a time where if we'd had more reformers like Elliot Ness or if the rest of the country had tried to follow Cleveland's suit, could we have had a better world and a better police force? Okay, so. 
I'm going to go ahead and be the utopian of the group here and say, not only do I think it could have been done, I think it still can be. And the reason is, uh, you know, people like to, you know, again, we have you seen this, you know, I've seen this going around social media and the like, like, you know, police say, oh, a couple bad apples ruin the uh, couple, but they're just bad apples. And the full saying is a couple bad apples ruin the bunch because yeah. a single rotten apple on a barrel will spread the rot. Yeah. And I do think that there's something to that in that what Ness came up against was that there was by the time he came there, came to Cleveland, the corruption was ingrained to the point that every station captain was taking a little bit of skin. And not only that, you had to pay money to your superiors to get promotions. It was the only way you moved up. Yep. And I could very easily see if I'm a young recruit coming in there and I want to make a career, I want to provide for my family and maybe I need more money or maybe, hey, I got another kid coming. The temptation to take part in that system would just keep mounting the longer you're there until you crack. I think that it's we could have done it. I think probably the the thing Ness needed to do, which he probably wouldn't have gotten the permission to do politically, would be to, to clean house, to just say, all right, all the station captains, everyone, they're gone and not not they're moved around. They're fired. They're they're yep. gone. And then we're going to bring in a whole new batch. And I think that that's really what need. I'm not saying we need to fire all the cops right now. What I'm saying is, is we need to do the hard work just like. Ness tried to do then of creating a new type of police culture. And I think a big part of that is supporting police officers in reducing what they're responsible for. We need to diversify, uh, I guess, our so our our social outreach so that it's not just we send a cop to every single situation. To me, the police are there for a very specific purpose. They're there to solve crimes. They're there to prevent crime. But you when you but you're not you shouldn't be sending them to people who are mentally ill, who are just ha out in the street and rambling because the cops aren't trained to deal with that. You send them social workers to deal with that and you send psychologists to deal with that. And I think that's what was needed then. And probably what's needed now is we need to change our mindset of not only what are the police for, but somehow work towards encouraging I guess what he was trying to encourage here, because Ness did have a group of officers that were his new untouchables. They couldn't be bribed. And he brought them up. They were young recruits. And he basically instilled in them from day one is this is how we do things. And I think if you have that kind of team camaraderie and strong leadership, it's possible to do that. And I still think we can. I think that. We need to uh, identify, do a lot better job, though, of identifying those who are invested in keeping the status quo going. Because as we saw in this book, I mean, the biggest opposition Ness faced, his true arch nemesis, were his own cops. Yep. Were the uh, ones who were trying desperately to get rid of him so they could go back to the day of taking skim off the top. They go back to getting cuts. They can go back to getting gifts from mobsters. Uh, and I think that that's the biggest thing is there needs to be. There needs to be some sort of a reckoning, a very painful one, before we can move forward, before we can grow. And I think Ness tried to do that. I just don't think either because of his own short-sightedness or political factors, he was able to go far enough. Okay. I think ultimately, um, you, like, ultimately, I... Like, I agree with what you're saying, right? I agree with that the... Right now, I think the biggest problem that we have in the police, one of the biggest problems that we have in the police force in terms of overall is that they just they have too much responsibility. 
uh, because there are tons of situations in which I don't believe that a cop should go to. Right. Um, uh, and I don't I don't even think that a cop, a cop, a full on police officer should be sitting in a squad car handing out traffic tickets all day. Right. Um, there's no, there's no reason for that. Ultimately, what we need is more structure in terms of like our, our local government, uh, because there's not enough resources. So let's say, let's say we do want to go to, we want to spread out to, uh, or we want to start switching over to a more social worker led system, because ultimately one of the things that was said in the book was, uh, uh, Elliot Ness's vision for cops was that they were all social workers essentially. And uh, I agree with that because they're the protect and serve. They're there for the community. Um, so that it should be community first. But anyway, uh, right now we lack funds financially. Almost every major city just doesn't have the funds to be able to even support a, a police force as it is now. So we there needs to be a reckoning not only within the police force and uh, changing how it's structured from the ground up, because cops should be a cop should be either you're a cop on the beat and you're literally walking around your neighborhood and you're there to help the people of that, of that neighborhood that you're working for. Right. Or you're a traffic cop and your job is to do traffic cop things, or you're a detective and you're solving crimes, but that should be the limit of what they do. They shouldn't like if they, if something comes up and they like, let's say let me back up. So let's say you're you're a cop that's on the beat and you're walking a neighborhood. Your job isn't to to prevent those crimes. It shouldn't be. Your job is to help out the neighborhood for whatever it might be. So going to the police academy isn't going to help you do that job. You need to be a social worker because that's when you're going to get the calls for somebody who's mentally ill. That's when you're going to get the calls for somebody who is, uh, who, who, who just needs to be talked down out of the talk down or whatever it might be. And you being there with a gun is literally only going to make the situation worse. Yep. Like those cops, that are like that would do those kind of things or whatever city official it, it ends up being they they don't even need they shouldn't even have a gun well yeah and i think it also puts the cops now it puts our police in a very bad situation to be in because their training you know it, it tells them of what these are your acceptable responses and what do you do when you're encountering a situation where none of your responses really match the stimuli you know yeah and and i think it, it sets up our police for failure and it also sets us up for the sort of constant conflict that we're seeing in the in the modern day between uh the police and the people they're protecting it and i think I think a large part of it has to do with, you know, earlier I was talking about the fact that the the position he occupied meant that Ness could not see certain populations as individuals. He just saw them as a loose collection of he just saw them as a loose mass that needed to be addressed and dealt with. I think that's how police tend to view Everyone, especially black people and criminals, just because they uh, and it's it's just 
because of the situation that you're in like you said they're put in they are put into this department into this culture and then they're essentially taught by the old guard that it's like these people hate you these people are the enemy these people are of and that they're taught to channel that fear that's planted in them into violence. And they have a gun that they can reach for literally whenever they feel like it. And well, so, well, of and course, I'll, people are getting murdered. Well, and also two things. One, we should not have seminars on, on what is it, killonomics or yeah killology yeah or whatever the fuck yeah that wow. that that seminar that a lot of police officers being sent to the killology seminars basically saying that are advocating deadly force as a response to everything um but also i i do think we need to get i mean a big part of this would be about reforming the police union and mind you i'm speaking entirely from articles i've read online i yeah. i am not a cop i don't know any cops um, so I could be getting some stuff wrong here, but from my understanding, a big part of it is also the police union, uh, which it tends to insulate and protect it, protect their officers when they do do something legal. And I think I, I think we need to try to cultivate a police force where we not only hold, you know, obviously our, our common citizens accountable, we hold police accountable to the very laws they're supposed to be upholding. Yes. And I think that came up a lot in this book, uh, especially the, the example comes to mind is Sheriff O'Donnell. Yes. Uh, so God, she- Sheriff O'Donnell. So Sheriff O'Donnell was the sheriff of one of the suburbs of Cleveland, uh, and he was famously corrupt. That's where this uh, the Harvard Club was, which was a famous mob controlled gambling ring. And he had this. He had this mentality of if they don't cause noise, I'm never going to deal with them. And he basically just let the mob run gambling operations across the town. That was the uh, story that I was referencing earlier when the Cleveland prosecutor, uh, Frank Culloden, was attempting to bust the Harvard Club and was given no backup by Sheriff O'Donnell's department and eventually resorted to calling Ness, who literally recruited 30 off-duty police because and that was that was not even necessarily to bust the Harvard Club. That was basically the fact that Culloden called him and he said, I can't leave right now and if I don't get some backup, they're going to come out here and they're going to kill me and everyone I brought with me. Yeah. Well, Sorry. And, and then the Sheriff O'Donnell was also the son of a bitch who uh, murdered Frank Dol- Dolezal. Yes. So Frank Dolezal. Oh, yeah, that's right. So basically, the, I got to give the context of that. That's st- yes, I, go th- right ahead. This was the answer I should have said to your previous question about what pissed me off. This story pissed me off more than anything. So basically, uh, Sheriff O'Donnell was getting afraid that Ness was going to run against him in the upcoming sheriff election based off nothing but his own paranoia. Ness, yes. Ness had no political ambitions at the time. And he had no interest in the sheriff's department. Yeah. And so he didn't even vote for his, most of his life. His answer, O'Donnell's answer to this was saying, well, then I'll embarrass Ness by solving the torso killer murders first. And he found a guy who had tangential connections to two of the victims. Yes. Uh, and this was a man named Frank Dolezal. Uh, he was a bohemian immigrant, a former slaughterhouse worker and a rumored homosexual, which uh O'Donnell thought was probably the worst thing of all, given his track record with well, homosexuals. Wasn't this the guy that the PI, this uh, like PI, was looking into or something? Uh, or am I thinking of something else? You're thinking of something else. Okay. Um. It. Yeah. Uh, Merlo, Detective Merlo, who was the actual lead on the torso murder case, uh, he interrogated Frank twice and was completely completely cleared him. So. Yeah. But O'Donnell said, "Nope, this is the guy." Took him in and 
after a couple days of interrogation, which o- was torture, yeah, O'Donnell signed a confession, and then he signed two more, and then in, and then he basically broke down, you know, crying, saying he was beaten into doing it. Yeah, and there was, and then they had him in prison for a while, and the next thing you know, all he killed himself, uh, and he's five foot eight, but he hung himself from a five foot seven hook in the wall. Oh, and the the coroner thinks that it looks more like a garrote than from hanging, but you know, it was definitely suicide, and that just and it was also that they could say no we settled it we solved it before elliot ness did and it just pissed me off because again it's when these it's when the thirst for power and the and uh, gets overwhelms your i guess when the thirst for power surpasses our basic humanity that's when we're really capable of the really shitty stuff and even detective merlo uh was pissed off about this he, yeah and which is hilarious given the fact that merlo hated homosexuals yeah and uh, that that was what struck me about that about that because when i was initially reading that um and please understand everything I'm about to say uh, for the next couple of minutes regarding Frank Dolazov is from the perspective of a homosexual transgender man. Mm-hmm. Like, um, there is a long and storied history of even when the victims are women, if a crime has a sexual component, there is an assumption that a gay man must have done it. There, there is an assumption that it, it. You can see it in the Andre Chikatilo case over in the Soviet Union. That was part of the reason they didn't catch him for so long, is because they assumed they were looking for a gay man, despite the majority of those victims being women. And that, and when we, when they, it got to that point talking about Dolazov, I was shocked that Marilla was able to see past his own prejudice and say this is not the guy but the truth of the matter is that poverty and his his sexual orientation literally forfeited his life yeah. for another for a more privileged man's petty political ambitions and that is disgusting there are some stains that can't be washed clean. I actually have the quote here from Marillo where he, he writes it off. He says, this was my first experience where a man is making a confession to a murder or any other serious crime and does not know the details of the crime he is alleged to have committed. Yep. I And... Uh, I don't know, it, it that 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 pissed me off. It it just that yeah. spun. I actually had to put the book down because that whole it, chapter spun me into a dimension of pissed off. I didn't expect to visit that day. It was it was not a pleasant evening for me either. It was uh, yeah. great great book though, guys. Get out there yeah. and buy it. And um, but yeah, and and again, like you said, even after Marillo's campaign of terror against against gay men within the roaring third even he was like nah it's a different queer you're looking for and it's just like <laughs> and it's just like god damn it Marillo I keep almost liking you I keep almost uh, thinking you're cool and then you open your fucking cop mouth and be a cop at me I don't like Marillo I will say this I really appreciate his dedication because he he threw himself at the butcher case with the dedication I'd want a cop to throw themselves at any case where I got murdered. He kept working it after he retired. He, he worked every weekend. All of his vacation time he spent working the case. And after he retired, he worked it till he died. And I mean, which is sad because it was Sweeney and it Sweeney had been locked Sweeney. away for a we while. Know we we are, know what was. We, I, have a, I, don't, I don't want to get into it right now, but are we going to talk yes. about what happened to Sweeney later? Um, We are going to talk about Sweeney. Okay. <laughs> there's, yeah, I'll there's, use that time to ramble. Yeah. Um, uh, so... <laughs> So yeah, there was there was that. 
and that fuck you <laughs> sheriff o'donnell fuck you just fuck you sheriff o'donnell from the bottom of my heart how do you really feel though i hate him i'm glad he's dead <laughs> i'm having flashbacks the last episode where you were just screaming philosophers names Pope <laughs> clement the <V. laughs> um okay so next discussion question uh let's pretend this is a recent case let's pretend that the mad butcher is tearing through cleveland's poor neighborhoods right now do you think this case goes down a little differently i mean yes because we have a lot more technology now than they had access to then that's gonna you know help the help the case ultimately um i think the hardest thing i mean we have a lot more ways of recognizing who the people might be and i think that's a big part of what they were lacking in that investigation is that most of the victims they just didn't know you know they had no there was nothing really for them to connect to and most of them were just torsos or just uh, they found a leg right so they there was no real way for them to figure out who it might have been or you know anything like that so i think the fact that we have a lot more ways of identifying who the person is, or who people are is going to be something that's going to that that's going to change the way that uh the that 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 the murder that the investigation would happen but ultimately the sheer amount of information and theories and whatever might have you know whatever might have it that we have on serial killers now like that's going to help us be able to build a case against Sweeney in this case, right? Uh, much easier because the one that, like everything that they had, be they had no phys- they had no hard evidence on Sweeney before, but they also really only had like circumstantial area or like circumstantial situations that brought him into the picture right like his old uh where he used to practice medicine things like that but i i feel like if we had that same kind that same information now we would be able to expand on it a lot faster we'd be able to get a lot more done i mean i'm not you know i i'm not a you know a, a, a csi expert by any means i don't know what we have but what i do understand is that we can figure shit out like that now so I think for me, the two big difference makers, one would be federal support, because anytime there's a serial killer, now you get the FBI involved. Yeah. The moment the FBI is involved, you have access to top of line crime labs. You have access to a lot more resources that would be brought to bear bringing him down. I think the other thing uh, that we'd have going for us in the modern day would simply be the concept of serial killers. And what I mean by that is I think the biggest hindrance that Ness and the rest of the Cleveland police faced is the inability to understand what they were even dealing with. This was a criminal, an evil, unlike anything that Ness had ever encountered. Yeah. And I think that that caused hesitation, that caused doubt. And I also think it caused a lot of confusion that ultimately meant that more people got murdered than needed to be. Um, 
I, obviously, I do think the forensics would have uh, aided, helped quite a bit. But I really think the biggest difference maker would have just been that they knew that serial killers were a thing because right. there had been other serial killers in in uh, the United States. H.H. H. Holmes was Albert Fish in the U.S. Yes, yeah. Albert, Al- yeah. and they they mention Albert Fish in the book, and they they did mention that he was a known thing. But like like we discussed at one point before discussing before doing this recording is they were treated as like these singular monsters they were treated as these these aberrations of the human psyche that you should not expect to see more than once in an entire lifetime yeah they they were they were like boogeymen they 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 were almost inhuman or supernatural it means because they'd spring up out of nowhere no one understood their motives and then then they leave carnage in their wake interestingly enough um and i bring this up because not only is it mentioned in the book it's one of my personal uh, favorite true crime cases uh, around this same time Germany was going through very some something very similar with Peter Curtin who was oh, like there was this around the same time period? yeah Peter Curtin was uh, P- Peter Curtin was circa World War One. Oh, yeah um, that's interesting he was for for Germany and serial killers Peter Curtin was very early and he and they they were going through kind of a very similar thing over there of like they'd arrested the guy and they were like we don't we don't know what this is like we don't know what we're looking at like even after they had him in a jail cell they're like we don't we're trying to talk to him and figure out why he did this and he's like he's fucking laughing at us and he's playing games with us and they're like he doesn't seem remorseful at all and all of his motivations for his killings is because I felt like it and because I could and they're like we don't we don't know what that is. No, it's it's I, scary, I admit, and we don't want to deal with it. Like honestly, if I was a cop at that time, I'd think this man's demonically possessed or something. I would right. think that I am looking at yeah. a real monster. Especially, yeah, go back to the torso murders uh, in Cleveland. The brutality shocked me. Like, and I, I'm I have been ingesting gory horror since I was seven. Uh, most of the victims died by decapitation, and so their heads were cut off while they were alive which, with a saw, which the coroner is correct even for a serial killer that's highly unusual and then the and then the body was dismembered and the way it was dismembered was like yeah i'm gonna slice in i'm gonna slice through flesh and then he would grab the limbs and just wrench them until they popped out of the socket fucking horrifying yeah yep uh i i couldn't get the sound of like wet ripping meat out of my head while i was reading that and like uh, honestly i think in some ways where Ness really shined was the the just the shit he came up with to try and combat it of like the I mentioned in the summary the torso clinic and for our, our listeners at home the torso clinic was basically this massive conference of cops detectives doctors and medical students and reporters and just other people with knowledge that might be helpful here and Ness and the Cleveland PD basically just rounded them up in a big auditorium and they put the evidence up and they're like okay guys what the hell are we looking at and they and they all just tried to hammer out what eventually became what we would now call a profile a criminal profile and that was part of what that was what peter murillo frequently brought up and cited that was actually part of the reason why he why he dismissed frank dolezal not even just because the guy didn't know the details what because murillo was like doesn't fit the profile and 
anyone who is forayed into serial killing based true crime knows that the profile in some ways is held almost a little too sacred and it was and also just for our reader our listeners at home i wanted to be a profiler with the fbi uh once upon a distant life ago and it's just it was it was fascinating to kind of see that in its infancy and to see that it was coming not from psychologists but from these much more on the ground people that were just bringing their various disparate expertise to what was going on and that was and honestly objectively especially for the time that was that was brilliant that was a brilliant move to just cry and die and like okay what we're doing's not working we need to try something brand new yeah I, I so and what's funny is that i have right here actually the the basic profile that they made and how accurate it is to sweeney um so um, their profile was a man large and physically able because he'd have to haul the body parts down to kingsbury run he'd have to know the kingsbury run area well which sweeney did he worked and lived there uh he was and he likely was a hunter or a butcher with knowledge of anatomy uh but not a not not a lot of knowledge of anatomy because of the crudeness of the dismemberments which he was a doctor uh so he did have an anatomical knowledge. He wasn't a hunter or a butcher. And he likely worked in his own kill shop somewhere near the run. And that actually ended up be, being likely very true because Sweeney had a deal with the funeral with a funeral parlor right next to his practice who would let him, quote, practice surgery on unclaimed corpses. And, witness, yep. and witnesses said that his practice surgery was him violently dismembering them. Yeah. And so as soon yeah. as I read that, I was like, OK, it's him. That's very clearly who we're looking for here. Um, and also his wife left him right before the first victim showed up. And usually serial killers, they start their killing spree due to a traumatic life change. Yep. That's that. And that is, I was a little blown away and genuinely impressed by how good that profile was of it's like, that is that, that is about what a lot of modern profiles will sound like. And the, I was, I was, I was very impressed. The Torso Clinic did great work, and the people who devised it as an idea d- d- deserve praise for that, even just for that alone. Yeah, no, I, I, I uh, it was very interesting, and I, it was fun watching them almost try to invent how to catch this killer yeah. on, on the run. Uh, it was very exciting. It's very engaging to read. I assume more exciting when you're not living it. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, I would imagine. All right. Did we all did we all answer that question? Yeah, I am spent. All right. Our final most important question is going to need to be changed because our final most important question was, did Sweeney do it? And we yeah, he did. I I would like to go over all the ways that Sweeney did that thing. (laughs) So honestly, Uh. our last discussion question, it could just be a general like, let's fucking talk about Dr. Francis Sweeney and the fact that he's a cackling cartoon villain from another planet okay okay i i I have to say you know what sure i could see it all all, that all the evidence is circumstantial enough that it wouldn't hold up in court but let's go down it here so we have a guy who got drugged by a random doctor and taken to his office and he got a bad vibe so he ran away yeah that doctor matches the physical description of sweeney yep later on after the torso murder started happening that guy came forward to the police and led the police to the building where Sweeney's practice used to be right next to the funeral parlor. Yep. Okay. Sure. 
Now he had an alibi. Sweeney did. He checked himself into a sailor's home, which uh, seemed like some sort of like a check yourself in mental clinic. Yeah, basically. Unfortunately, the way it worked is he could sign himself in and just walk out whenever he wanted. Mm -hmm. There was a thief who stayed there frequently. I I have his name written down somewhere here, but that thief said that, yeah, no, Sweeney's the butcher because every time he'd leave, there'd be another torso murder. And then eventually... uh, Eventually, after he was after he went away to a mental institution for a while, the murders stopped the moment he was actually put away and wasn't allowed to leave on his own. Yep. The the only other murder that happened was during the time he wasn't in the mental institution. Yep. (laughs) I I'm I'm sorry. The timing lines up. And also that last murder, people saw saw a guy matching his description sunbathing for a week in the area where the body was then found. The day he stopped sunbathing, there was the day a corpse was there. Yep. I yep. Doctor Sweeney did that thing. <laughs> uh, he is the torso murder. I don't think this is personally. I don't think it's debatable. Um, and it, uh, it seems pretty. Like it honestly seems pretty rock solid. The the fact that even that even Ness was like the case was solved, and everyone's like, yes, Frank Dolezal, and he's like, no. <laughs> It was Dr. Sweeney, and they wouldn't let me arrest him. But, and what I found very interesting about that is is really, you know, we talk about Ness being untouchable, you know, staying within the limits of the law no matter what. And it seems like to, to stop the torso murder, he went outside the law. Um, because so the implication, this is not known. It's more inferred based off the events. But basically, Ness implied that he... Uh, got Sweeney put away in a mental institution. And there's a lot of conjecture that actually one of uh, one of his biggest detractors, the congressman Sweeney, uh, which would be the killer's cousin, helped do it because make that guy go away so it doesn't impact my political career. There's there's so many parallels to the Jack the Ripper case. Yes, I was, yeah. hoping that, I was hoping that you that that you would bring that up because I couldn't stop thinking about that. Yeah. Um, for, for those not necessarily um, as as brain rotted about this topic as I am. Um, There is a lot of, there is a pretty pervasive belief among Ripperologists that Ripper, that Jack the Ripper was probably a nobleman. Uh, Specifically, a lot of people suspect uh, the Queen's personal surgeon. And there is a belief that what actually happened is Scotland Yard went to the crown and they said, your dude's been murdering hookers. And she went, yeah, I thought maybe he was doing that. Okay, uh, don't arrest him. Don't tell anybody. I'll take care of it. And that legitimately feels like what just happened to Sweetie. If they someone just called, like you said, called Senator Sweetie and was like, "Your cousin's murdering people," it was like, "Yeah, I thought he was doing that." Uh, okay, I'll take care of it. Don't arrest him. Don't tell anyone. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I really do think that probably Ness and and Congressman Sweeney sat down. And, you know, especially because after after that happened, after uh, the doctor was put away, Congressman Sweeney suddenly never mentioned the torso murders, stopped attacking Ness in the press when really he had been railing on Ness in the press for years at this point because he was trying to unseat Mayor Burton, who had appointed Ness because Mayor Burton was a Republican and Sweeney wanted a Democrat in that seat. And he and one of the big things that was a feather in Burton's cap was Ness's success as the security director. So he was going after Ness perpetually in the press. And the moment that Dr. Sweeney uh, went away to an institution, suddenly all that stopped. And granted, 
granted, Congressman Sweeney had more important things to do by then, like spreading Nazi propaganda, which he absolutely did. He was a Nazi sympathizer in Congress. Yeah, he sucked. I actually he was punched over it, uh, which I, I love that story too. And his son, his son was a congressman too. His his son was a congressman. Yeah, well, uh, Congressman Sweeney's son was also a congressman. Okay, oh, fascinating. Yeah, they're a, they're a family of politicians. Oh, a dynasty. Yeah. Doesn't that sound familiar? <laughs> of course, the di- the dynasty of politicians you know includes a serial killer. You know what else sounded familiar? Uh, Mayor Burton just reminded me of Joe Biden, just in every fucking <laughs> term of just like, hey, we, the black voters, got you elected. Would you like to, I don't know, fix the problems in our, help fix the problems in our community that you said you would throw money and resources at? And he was like, no, I don't think I will. <laughs> I will, uh, I will say something for Congressman Sweeney. There will always be a line on his Wikipedia article that his cousin was a number one suspect in the uh, in the Mad Butcher yeah. crime. Oh, and, and also Burton, I was surprised to find out he uh, went all the way to the Supreme Court. Yeah. Really? Yeah. He was see by the time Ness died, uh, he was seated on the Supreme Court. Yeah, like one of the condolence letters that came in after Ness's heart attack. Yeah, because he was part of Brown v. Board of Education, right? Yeah. Oh, oh, I don't. Oh, do we know what side he voted on? Probably the wrong one. But maybe not. He's his track record didn't seem that bad. I think I I I mean I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I maybe I'm talking out my ass here. I can uh, just look it up real quick. Yeah. I just I, don't, I just it it just constantly felt like I just I just. Not just Mayor Burton frustrated me. The one that most frustrated me the most was probably Chief Matowitz. It was nine zero. <laughs> oh, okay. Chief Matowitz was just watering his fucking plants while organized crime in his own police force burned Cleveland to the ground. Yeah. yeah. Burton was a justice then. <laughs> yeah, he was. Okay. So, okay. Yay. Good job, Justice Burton. Voting um, f- voting for br- voting on the correct side of history, even though you left Elliot Ness in the cold after he built your career. Well, and God, can we can we also I know where that was the last discussion. Can we talk about the end of Ness's life? Of course we We can to end on that sad note, because we got to leave our listeners at home with the same feeling we had finishing this book. Uh, So Ness, he had a series of failed business ventures. Eventually, he tried to kind of get some get going again with this uh, new company that was patenting a new form of watermarking technology for bank checks. Yep. And unfortunately, one of his business partners was corrupt as shit. And when he realized that Ness wasn't going to play ball, tried his hardest to get Ness outed. And Ness basically worked himself to death. He he kept working to try to save the company from his partner until one day he uh, he he was told he had some. Some sort of arrhythmia in his heart and his doctor told him to take it easy which he didn't and he worked himself <laughs> until he fell over in his kitchen dead at i think like age 56 or something like that yeah <laughs> yeah it was in his 50s yeah too young quite frankly just well, too young well, and then his ashes his wife's ashes ashes and their adopted son's ashes ended up in the son's wife's garage for 20 years just sitting in a box until uh someone basically a, a, someone from cleveland dug up the history went looking and found out that that was the case and they held a giant funeral in the uh early 90s i believe yeah it was something like that in 1997 a thousand people the uh, city worker was rebecca farland of uh the cleveland police historical society so she sought them out and she organized a funeral of a thousand people where they 
set the record straight about Ness's reputation. Because at that point, a lot of people in Cleveland uh, had a really bad view of him. Uh, and they put down a large boulder with Ness's name on it near the shore of Lake Erie, and they spread the ashes out in the lake beyond that. Because he had spent a lot of time on Lake Erie. Yeah. Um, Hiding you know, from his marriage. In his boat. Um, Rory. Uh... So other than the I'm so glad that you also noticed the Ripper parallels. That makes me very happy. Um, And so other than the almost eerie parallels to Jack the Ripper, what how what did you think of our mad butcher who was definitely Francis Sweeney? Like, I mean, I'm not going to I'm not I'm not I I think I I hate to say this because it's terrible, but I I like how cocky Sweeney got about it. It was almost entertaining. Yeah, he starts sending postcards to Ness. Yeah, and he, he uh, you know, he like like you guys had said earlier, he became obsessed with Ness. But like he knew he knew that Ness had nothing on him. And uh, I think one of my favorite scenes in the whole book is when the one new like untouchable that was getting trained, the young cop. And Sweeney fucking dodges him on those uh, train cars or whatever. Yeah. Oh yeah. And, and then and then tells him where he's gonna be the next day. Like F- fucking savage. Yeah, so like, fucking calls Ness to tattle on yeah. like, hey, here's all the ways your boy fucked up today. Yeah, like, and then yeah. sends him a letter. like, I'll be at this bookstore or whatever at two p.m. the next day because uh, Elliot Ness, because he was so convinced that Sweeney did it because he did. Yeah. Um. He he had Sweeney followed pretty much twenty four seven. He yeah. there was always somebody watching Sweeney, and so you know he sends this young guy to go after him, and fucking Sweeney, being the little slime ball that he is, just dodges him within like minutes. Uh, it seemed like of of uh, of this new guy tailing him, and yeah. As much as I hate it, I almost appreciate that because it's like this dude, he he knew what he was doing, and he. As awful as what he as what he did was he uh, he did it with some swagger. <laughs> yeah, he he he's a fascinating figure in and of himself. Like I still I'm still struck by just the fact that he started he dumped two of his kills across the street from City Hall in a park that Ness could see from his office window. Yeah. That was a very pointed message. Uh, yeah, and uh, well, and also there's more evidence that it. Well, in my mind, more circumstantial evidence at Sweeney, the postcards, the you know the the crazy killer postcards and the bodies being dumped across from City Hall. That only happened after Ness had his first confrontation yes, with Sweeney. Exactly. Right. That was honestly what tipped me over the edge was the fact that I'd studied this case not nearly as in-depth before, but I, I knew of this case. The one thing that I had never been told before was the taunting of Ness did not start until after he had his first face-to-face conference conversation with Sweeney. And I was like, that's... That's important. Like, that's a factor that we have to put into the evidence is the timeline of when those things started. Well, that and I mean, I feel like that would have been enough to bring Sweeney in. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I I do think probably if this happened in the modern day again, because we'd have the concept of a serial killer, I think Sweeney would have been brought in and kept in a lot sooner. Yeah. 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 Because, again, we've had cases now where people have been brought in and held on nothing but a profile. Right. Which I do not agree with, but yes, it probably would have gotten Sweeney caught faster. Yeah, probably would have. 
Um, I actually have a a my probably my favorite quote from the book here. If you're okay with it, go right it. ahead. It's from the end of the book, uh, and I, it, I think to me it does sum up. It does do, does a very good job of summing up who Ness was. In 1992, Peter Jettick suggested naming the Cleveland's Justice Center after Ness. That never happened, but the mammoth structure on Ontario Street honors the former safety director with exhibits at the Cleveland Police Historical Society Museum. Images and artifacts document the reforms Ness brought to the department, while four death masks of the butcher's victims look on from the opposite wall. Ness's legacy lies trapped between his undeniable successes on one hand, his failure to protect some of the city's most vulnerable on the other. Under the glass in the museum is Ness's service revolver, the nearly 99-year-old weapon after so much time in the safety director's file cabinet looks brand new. Perhaps this is the best memorial to what Elliot Ness stood for and for everything he thought a police officer should be, the gun he rarely carried, which will never be fired again. God damn. I mean, I gotta say, it, it... Thoughts about Ness aside, that's some great, great A fucking writing right oh, there. Yeah. Yeah. The, this oh, yeah. book is written beautifully of like when I say that Francis Sweetie feels like a cackling cartoon supervillain from another planet. That's because this book manages to capture how fucking scary this man yeah. was in very few interactions. Like we were talking about, he, the butcher is only about 25 percent of the book. And yet. I do agree that it should be on the title because it is the most memorable yeah. part is the absolutely. interactions with Sweeney it, it just chilling um, absolutely chilling stuff. great job on the on the part of the authors Max Allen Collins and Brad Schwartz I actually have a little bit about them if you'd like go right ahead <laughs> <laughs> I do my research so Max Allen Collins and Brad Schwartz, a, a Brad Schwartz this is actually the second book they worked on together uh, and it was supposed to be this book was supposed to be part of the first book they wrote together because right, the first one was about Al Capone right yeah, their, yeah. Their, their first concept was to write a book about cradle to grave Capone and Ness basically take them all all from the beginning both from the beginning of their life to the end of their life but the problem is that Capone's story ends a lot sooner yeah and they real well their publisher wanted them to keep it within a hundred thousand words for father's day uh and so they they decided that they take all the cleveland stuff and put that off into volume two uh and so that's how this book ended up coming about is this is actually technically the second part of the story but it, yeah. it operates well enough on its own uh getting into the authors a little bit max allen collins is an absurdly prolific writer uh i i didn't even bother to count the number of titles he is he has mostly written a lot of mysteries thrillers spy thrillers things like that he is a grand master of the mystery writers of america god damn yeah he was born march 3rd in 19, 1948 uh i'm just going to go over a couple of his of his high points here because like i said he has published so much over the years i couldn't go through it all uh he is the author of the graphic novel Road to Perdition. Uh, he wrote a very popular historical thriller series called the Nathan Heller series. Uh, he has directed two full-length documentaries. He uh, also wrote some of the original Dick Tracy newspaper strips, which were heavily inspired by Ness and the Untouchables. Uh, he also wrote for Batman and crafted one of the origin stories for Jason Todd. <gasps> yeah. Uh, <laughs> he also performs in his own rock band called Cruisin, which I really I tried to find some Cruisin music and uh, I can't uh, uh, at least not that has any kind of good enough sound that quality. Is the second author in a row that has that has a secondary occupation as a rock star. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if it's a rock star. It was said he performs in a band called Cruisin. I don't It might I, be more me, like Stephen King performs in that band every now and again. Yeah. Uh, let, let me have this. So, Abra 
Brad Schwartz is actually much younger. He is a trained historian at Princeton University. As far as I know, he is still working on his PhD there. Uh, his work focuses mostly on media and ju- media journalism, law and policing, and the cultural production of history. Uh, his first book was brought called Broadcast Hysteria: Orson Welles' War of the Worlds and the Art of Fake News, which I, I kind of want to read. Um, and what's interesting is he was actually a big fan of Collins when he was a kid because he was a big Dick Tracy fan. And so him getting to work with Collins on this is kind of like he got to meet his hero and then write two books with him. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Um, and and so by this- sheer coincidence, Elliot Ness was the primary inspiration for Dick Tracy. But yeah, no, I uh, I, I think these two uh, make a really good team. I think from what I understand, they both did a lot of research. And what's actually interesting is over the course of writing this book, I was listening to an interview today. Uh, with them they only met in person three times while writing this book the rest of the time they were just on the phone with each other and as someone who uh writes who tries trying to write books you know myself i i can't imagine ha- being that distant from someone i was working on a project like that with it'd be very difficult i think yeah or maybe make it easier i'm i don't know Maybe we'll have to experiment jay you and i can write a book you know living together and then i'll send you to guam and we'll try it there why Guam? I, I don't know. It was the first thing that came to mind. I don't want to go to Guam. Jay is very small and compact. I'll save on shipping. You will save on shipping. Please don't send my husband to Guam. I'll do what I damn well please. No. <laughs> <laughs> if you're gonna go, if you're gonna send me anywhere, send me to hell so I can beat up Sheriff O'Donnell. Or Vegas. Or Vegas. Vegas is cool. Or Vegas, where I'll find someone who looks like Sheriff O'Donnell, and I'll beat them up. Just some poor elderly man at the the slot (laughs) machines, walk up and curb stomp him on the screen. That's where Frank Dolezal, who? You'll find out. (laughs) Oh, Jesus. Oh, God. Also, is it bad that when I read about how Frank Dolezal died, the first thought popped in my mind was, oh, he got Epstein. We've gotten to the point as a culture that Epstein, Epstein is now a verb. Is it, though, or did you just say that? I don't know. I just fell out of my disease I mean, you're, you're not wrong, though. You're not wrong, though. Yeah. Uh, so is, is that it? Are we, are, did, we, did we come out the other <laughs> side of this one? Uh, unless anyone has some closing thoughts, then yeah, I think, I think we might be good. I, I mean, I, I have thoughts, but they're not appropriate. Man, fuck Sheriff O'Donnell. I think I might base a character off Sweeney. Do it. Like in the future, do it. That'd be cool. Sweeney's. Listen, listen. Everyone who he hurt is gone. We're we're allowed to be interested again. It's the same <laughs> thing with like Peter Curtin. I'm allowed to be like, yes, I, I you know, slay him again. Like I said, I think uh, my big struggle with true crime is I empathize for the victims a bit too much. Yeah, I, mean, I do. I do too. And but... uh, so like, I have, I I definitely struggled with with that because all like when I every time I was reading Sweeney, all I was thinking is you son of a bitch, you you deserve every bad thing that's coming to you. And what pissed me off is he lived to a ripe old age in a mental institution. I mean, granted, mental institutions aren't happy places, especially in the sixties and seventies. So he probably suffered quite a bit. But I I did want the moment of the monster paraded in chains out and all of his crimes revealed to the public and instead it's this very quiet uh, behind doors ending to the story if if for no other reason then the community deserved that yeah well and that's the thing is you got to think for you know the poor victims families the people who knew them there's never any closure especially if the people who were actually in that community and knew damn well that dolezal didn't do it 
that 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 was the also the thing of just like Frank Dolazov deserved to have his name cleared properly. And he did, and he deserved to live his life. He God, it was. There's just so much. There's so much in this book that I I wanted to my rage. I wished my rage was enough to warp space time enough that I could just step back to the 1940s and just start slapping people really hard. <laughs> that that is honestly kind of part like segues into my personal closing thoughts. Is that in many ways this is a story about the evils of privilege of like the privilege that protected Sweeney the lack of privilege that made his victims vulnerable the privilege that Ness didn't realize he had that blinded him and the fact that that lack of privilege prevented Cleveland's first black police officers from doing their fucking jobs under Ness yeah that was a that was a fun that was not fun but that was an interesting aside uh, we're guarding those off if you guys pick up this book for no other reason please pick it up for just a look into the history of of african americans in american policing and the and and the the ever-evolving rubik's cube of complications that comes from that i i uh, honestly five out of five i i would recommend this book yeah, absolutely I, I loved this book uh and that's coming from someone who again i i really don't read true crime it's not not my jam but uh this was so well written i forgot what i was reading i as i said i routinely forgot that this was about the mad butcher i would just be like yeah elliot ness fighting racketeers oh god it's another dead homeless person <laughs> <laughs> yeah so uh are we are we time time for housekeeping? Yep, time for housekeeping. Okay, okay. Well, that puts an end to Elliot Ness and the Mad Butcher, and uh, Rory's gonna lead us on a bit of an adventure here in two weeks. Oh uh, yeah, I'm already vibrating in rage. Yeah, we're gonna read Alien World Order. It's making us dumber by Len <laughs> by Len Craston. It's making us dumber. <laughs> Yeah. I, have you even started it yet? No. So you have you can't say that. You haven't suffered like I have yet. The dust but you jacket will, made but me you, you will suffer. No, I don't want to. Don't I suffer enough? No. <laughs> Not at all. Oh. Not even a little. What? I see personally, I'm excited about this one, mostly because um you're so angry. I I'm gonna put this out there. <laughs> if I didn't have to finish the book for this podcast. I would not have burned it. I would not have shredded it. I would have done everything in my power to get my hands on a powerful acid just so I'd have the pleasure of watching it fall to its constituent pieces atom at a time. I... I, there's so much about that book that made me angry. But and the thing that pays, I think I'm going to you know, kind of a prequel here, guy, uh, preview here, guys. The thing that makes me angry is there is some legitimately interesting historical stuff in there interspliced with some other things that uh, we're going to get to. And you're probably going to hear me yelling about, but it's going to be fun. And that's coming in two weeks. So look forward to that. Yeah, and if you have anything that you want to say uh, about this episode, any of our past episodes, if you have any compliments, concerns, swear words, anything like that, you can always reach us at noctivigantpodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at noctivigantpod, and I am at Mix Rory Wicks. 
I am at Midwest Undead. And I am at Bearish Terror. Also, send us book suggestions if you like. And if you feel like going on this journey with us, pick up Alien World Order by Len Craston and uh, read it with us. They do have it on Audible. So if you have 15 credits and you need to blow one, there you go. How, how's the how's the, uh, the the audiobook narration? I don't know. I've been reading it on my Kindle. Oh. The narration for Mad Butcher was very good. Yes, it was. I, I can't imagine they'd hire someone who's bad for that. Okay, well, I think that's it. So uh, lead us out of here, Jay. Good night, ghosties. Good night, ghoulies. Good night, moth people. Be safe on those midnight roads out there, and we'll see you in two weeks. A fortnight. Half a month. 14 days. All I'm saying is, if Dr. Francis Sweeney was not the mad butcher of Kingsbury Run, then he was framed by some sort of mischievous fairy.